0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Just let your soul go. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul go.
1: This is Clint Wells, and you're listening to a very special New Year's edition of Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. Today I'll be playing songs from my top 10 albums of 2022 and hopefully turning you on to some music you may have missed or overlooked. And I'll be talking a little bit about what makes each of these songs special to me. I'll also be answering questions ranging from life as a touring musician and songwriter to my favorite films, music, Metallica, Becoming an Atheist, What I'm Thankful For, and My Hopes for 2023. Ah, 2023, a new year, a new set of resolutions, a new chance to get it right a new life, a new you, the great perennial reset where gym memberships skyrocket, various scripts and novels and songs edge closer to being born, ambitious fad diets are started, no gluten, no carbs, no meat, only meat, only raw meat, only potatoes, no dairy, intermittent fasting, juice cleanses, Atkins, keto, paleo, South Beach, you get the idea. Maybe this year you'll start that business or finish night school or tell your boss to fuck off. Maybe you'll read more, complain less. Maybe you'll make a better effort to keep in touch with family and friends. Take that European vacation with your kids. Put your goddamn phone down. Be more present. Donate to charity and do more shopping locally. Human beings need hope. And maybe even more than hope, human beings need structure. The new year gives us both. The promise of something new, something better. A renewed incentive to get our shit together. To face the great unknown with courage and a determination to be the arbiters of our own destinies. A hard reset, a spiritual line of demarcation. You can almost close your eyes and hear the starting gun in the distance, leveling the playing field and signaling the great beginning of the rest of your life. And yet, let's face it, life doesn't ever seem to play out that way, does it? Last night we watched the 1998 romantic comedy You've Got Mail, starring Meg Ryan as Kathleen Kelly, owner of the small but quaint boutique bookstore The Shop Around the Corner, And Tom Hanks is Joe Fox, the charming but somewhat calculating bourgeois heir to mega-corporate superstore Fox Books, whose grand opening on the same Upper West Side block of Manhattan threatens to put the shop around the corner and Kathleen Kelly out of business. We learn that both Kathleen and Joe are in unsatisfying relationships. Kathleen with Frank, played wonderfully by Greg Kinnear, a liberal columnist for the New York Observer, who's skeptical of Kathleen's computer, prophetically claiming it as ushering in the fall of civilization, and preferring his antiquated typewriter instead, and Joe with Patricia, played by Parker Posey, a beautiful but unlikable self-absorbed publishing executive. Both Kathleen and Joe seek solace from their failing relationships where all of us hung out in the late 90s, AOL chat rooms. I remember the early days of AOL, sneaking into the family computer room at night, hoping the dial-up sounds wouldn't wake my mother or siblings, that excitement when the connection was made, and those three words of dumb euphoria, you've got mail. This was years before Spam, a simpler time when I spent hours in unmoderated chat rooms talking about Pink Floyd records and downloading, for sometimes hours or even days, pictures of the members of Rage Against the Machine. But anyway, after her 30th birthday, which, why do all adults in 90s movies look 45? Kathleen, anonymously as Shop Girl, meets Joe, anonymously as NYC152, in an over-30s chat room and they begin an innocent friendship That soon blossoms into something more. No personal details are shared, no names, no jobs, but intimate secrets and longings are exchanged, and soon the two are caught in the unmistakable grips of an emotional affair. It's a charming sign of the times that neither party considers this online affair cheating. Kathleen even talks about the possibility of cyber sex as if it's something you can get on sale at Barney's. But eventually they do decide to throw caution to the wind and meet in person, her signal in the agreed upon coffee shop being a book, Pride and Prejudice, of course. With a long stemmed red rose. How romantic. Meanwhile, in the real world, Joe and Kathleen have begun to cross paths. They first meet when Joe takes his brother and aunt, who, by the way, are both kids younger than 10 due to the continued late marriages of his father, Fox Jr., and grandfather, Fox Sr., out for presents, and they stop into the shop around the corner where Kathleen warmly reads them a children's story. And then they meet again later at a party where Kathleen, realizing Joe is the Joe Fox of Fox Books, confronts him about shutting her business down. The two are enemies. Kathleen sees Joe as a shallow, soulless, corporate ghoul, and Joe sees Kathleen as an inconvenient, self-righteous pest, although it seems some of her criticisms actually do penetrate his cold exterior. Maybe he's not the Grinch she's made him out to be after all. Back to the meeting between Shopgirl and NYC152, finally meeting in person, Joe, torn between possibly being in love with Shopgirl but also reasonably worrying about her physical appearance, which I honestly found refreshing, has his best friend, played by Dave Chappelle, take a look for him. To their shock and horror, shopgirl turns out to be Kathleen, Joe's nemesis. NYC152 decides to stand Kathleen up. He can't face it. He can't face her. But Joe, intrigued, enters the coffee shop and attempts to begin an unlikely friendship with Kathleen, who honestly still seems to despise him. Shopgirl and NYC-152 continue their online relationship, with NYC-152 making vague excuses for standing her up, but promising to explain it all to her someday in the future. In the real world, Fox Books has inevitably put the shop around the corner out of business. Kathleen moves into the new unknown, thinking maybe it's time to finally write those children's books she's always dreamed of. Both Joe and Kathleen have ended their loveless relationships, and Joe, using his knowledge as NYC-152, Shopgirl's intimate confidant, starts conveniently bumping into Kathleen around their New York City neighborhood, and the two begin to form a romantic connection. Tying it all together, Joe, as NYC 152, initiates a second meeting with Shop Girl, this time promising he won't let her down. Kathleen and Joe in the real world have lunch before her big meeting, where Joe professes his love for Kathleen and wonders if maybe if life had been a little different, she could love him too. Stunned, she leaves in tears to meet her online lover, who, of course, turns out to be Joe Fox. Holding his face, she exclaims, I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so bad. They kiss in the park before the credits roll, and all of us at home are smiling despite ourselves, once again believing in the magic of new beginnings. Is life really like this, we wonder? Despite the horrible circumstances every character in this movie experienced changes in their lives for the better. Birdie, the elderly bookkeeper for the shop around the corner, takes the closing of the shop exceptionally well, and why not? Turns out she's rich from investing in Intel. Kathleen's other two out-of-work employees are Christina, a young, beautiful clerk who was only working part-time while in college, and George, played by Steve Zahn, who was actually hired by Fox Books and, according to Joe, revolutionizing the children's section. Over their breakup dinner, Kathleen and Frank both laugh like old friends once they both admit they aren't in love with one another. When Kathleen asks Frank if there's someone else, he admits his feelings for a local conservative TV anchor. Kathleen asks, but isn't she a Republican? Frank giggles, I just can't help myself. And they both burst into laughter, sipping wine. When Frank asks Kathleen if she has someone else, she pauses sadly and says no, but then raises her chin defiantly saying, there's still the hope for someone else. Hope for a new beginning, a new life, new love, a new year. And it was true. Kathleen found love and through the devastating loss of her bookstore, was able to finally fulfill her dreams as a children's author. Joe broke the cycle of loveless, joyless marriages he inherited from his father and grandfather, and even though the big corporate store actually did win, even the movies can't disguise the crushing inevitability of capitalism, nor did this one even try, we do get the sense that Kathleen's philanthropic purity has imbued itself in some vaguely meaningful way into the cultural ethos of the big box chain store, Making it warmer, more friendly, more people-oriented, rather than driven by the ultimate bottom line—money, power, status. Ultimately, we love You've Got Mail not because Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have some sort of unparalleled cosmic movie chemistry, which they most certainly do, not because it's sentimental and at times kind of dumb and breezy, impossible and naive, not because writer Nora Ephron has been telling us these whimsical and wonderful love stories for decades. But because we want to believe that when life is at its ugliest and loneliest, when hope seems far away, and it feels too late to make a change or move towards the fulfillment of our most secret dreams, there's always January 1st and the hope for someone else, even if that someone else is still, in the end, just who we always were. That was Courtney Marie Andrews with These Are The Good Old Days from her new album, Loose Future. And I love it. It it reminds me of uh, Daniel Lenoir production. It's got that nugget of Americana folk in it, but it feels kind of bouncy and alive and different. And it's very rhythmic and pulsing. And it feels like you sort of close your eyes and reach out and touch the song in a way. It's very... It feels very real in that way. I just absolutely love it. And the whole record sounds that good too. Highly recommend it. Loose Future, Courtney Marie Andrews. All right. The first few questions we have here, um, I combined them because they were sort of similar. So I'm going to read them. These are from John Allen and Zach Balsley. John Allen says, you've played in tour with established acts during your career. Is it more exciting to now be playing in a band with Ethan together as friends with an upcoming new artist like Morgan, who is at the beginning of her journey? And then Zach Balsley says, how is it being in a band slash being the band leader with Ethan. Also loved Vampire and Lunar Satan. Can't wait to hear more stuff. Well, thank you. Glad you liked my two solo albums, Vampire and Lunar Satan. I, if you do like Vampire, I do recommend my dark acoustic piano-driven EP called Great White Light that's available wherever you can stream stuff and be look uh, on the lookout for my new rock LP going supernova. Um, I've toured with a lot of people in a lot of different stages of their career. Anything from you know, Up and Coming to Established a legacy act, stuff's going on. Maybe not that much is going on, but there's a dedicated fan base. I've really kind of seen it all, and it is exciting to be with Morgan. It definitely feels like we're on a rocket ship that is blowing up, and there's a lot of excitement around her, this headlining tour we've got coming up. And that does feel good. I mean, I've been on the ride for a long time, it's a lot of work at this level. Especially this last year, just being, you know, doing support shows most of the year, really having to earn it kind of feels like in the trenches a little bit, which is a good feeling. I talk a little bit about that later. And having Ethan out there with me has been great. It's always good to have a buddy that you trust by your side. And, you know, we're pretty different people. And that's, I've really sort of learned that a lot traveling with him on tour. You know, he's very life of the party, social, likes to stay up late. Likes to get up first. Likes to sit in catering and talk to everybody. I'm a little more, if you can, if you can believe it out there, a little more reserved to myself. A little more moody. When I turn that thing on, when I want to have a good time, I definitely do it. But I can't do it every day. And I, I generally watch basketball and go to bed early. Um, as the band leader, I do feel like there's I have a different layer of responsibilities that are that can weigh on me a little bit. And I also just miss home a lot. You know, I miss my girls. So that's a dynamic that. You know, we, we don't have the similar dynamic in that way. But having him out there has, of course, been great. It's just always good to make music, to be able to look over on stage when we're doing something crazy, like playing in front of, I don't know, 30,000 people and see your buddy up there. And it's, it's really nice. I'm really glad he's there with me. Nicholas Sardo says, Have you ever checked out King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? They're a psych rock band from Australia, and they put out three crazy good albums this year. Their song Iron Lung is killer. Well, I had not heard of them, but I did listen to that song, and I wrote down my real-time reactions, and I will read them to you now. Checking it out now, it's nine minutes long. I like this dude's voice, kind of a jazzy drum sound. Crazy album cover, even crazier album title, which the title, by the way, is Ice, Death, Planets, Lungs, Mushrooms, and Lava. Pretty far out, jammy, soul, funk, clean wah guitars, horns, very far out. Definitely psychedelic, big fuzzy guitar solo. A lot to take in on first listen, but very cool. We'll explore further. So th- there you go. That was my honest reaction. Uh, Michael Salazar says, What's your favorite Jason Newsted live performance? Any songs in particular that stand out to you? And that's going to have to be S&M 1 by a Mile, which is my favorite live performance from Metallica in general. And if we're including live albums, is my favorite Metallica album of all. The standouts for Jason are, for me, of Wolf and Man, Devil's Dance, Until It Sleeps, but really the whole thing. I also really love the June 3rd, 2000 performance of I Disappear on the MTV Movie Awards. I love the song in general. Uh, I always did when I was a kid. My friends were starting to get off the ride with I Disappear. I had really close Metallica friends that did not like that song. But I always loved it. And this performance is one of the last times the band would display their soon-to-change-forever 90s swagger. And the vocals were mixed pretty hot in the live broadcast, so you can really hear how great his vocals were. Blodsky Girl says, which member of Metallica do you most identify with from both a musician and personal point of view? What a great question. There are bits and pieces of each member of Metallica that I see in myself. I see Rob's consummate professionalism when I think of all the bands and artists that I've played with coming into a musical situation that isn't of my own making, meticulously learning the material, being on time, being reliable, someone who's easy and pleasant to get along with, a good hang, as we say here in Nashville. Someone who, with creative distance, can offer interesting musical suggestions and even encourage a band or an artist to explore deeper or overlook parts of their catalog, which is something Rob, I think, did with Dire Eve or Spit Out the Bone, for example. And then, of course, when called upon, someone who can offer valuable creative input. With Kirk, aside from the obvious shared passion for horror films and horror ephemera in general, I feel a connection to the spiritual wanderer in Kirk. There's a quiet but forceful exploration in Kirk's spirit that I admire and see in my own life and the blues based textures of his guitar playing in the load era are very much present in my guitar playing style today in lars i see an ever curious erudite lover of music films literature art someone who's always risen above his limitations with charm um i was a latchkey kid in alabama whose only doorways out of the small world i was born into were the books records and movies that i loved like lars i passed up the traditional college experience to pursue a life of touring and music making And like Lars, I've spent a considerable amount of my non-music making time and energy supplementing the formal education I never had by voraciously consuming art and literature and him and I share a curiosity about the world. Musically and personally, I resonate mostly with Hetfield, more prone to silence and grumpiness. I feel a kinship with him as the reluctant leader who both takes on and maybe even slightly resents the role, but is also unable to cede it to anyone else. I respond to his lead guitar work. I see a lot of it in my own playing. Loose, but with a lot of feel. Arguably the best feel of anyone in the band. Uh, lyrically and emotionally, I've always felt like I understood where he was coming from, even if I didn't completely understand the lyrics at times. We likely don't see eye to eye on religion, and even though we probably are closer politically than we were, say, five years ago, we'd probably diverge in those areas before the main course arrived at a dinner in his favorite Vail, Colorado Steakhouse. But None of those things matter much to me anymore, at least not as much as what we seem to have in common, which in addition to all the things I just listed, seems to be a desire to create music with personal integrity and to aspire for that music to bring people together rather than divide them.
2: I got on fine with modern living, but must I be such a citizen, and the world still so
1: That was Spoon with Wild, Austin, Texas alt-rock band that I love. This is their 10th album, nominated for Best Rock Album Grammy. And uh, their last album was 2017's Hot Thoughts, pretty experimental, a lot of keys, a lot of programming. This was sort of a return to form. I mentioned this on the podcast, but Spoon is one of the two bands that I would recommend, like current contemporary bands that sound like uh, the Beatles, that sound like mid-'60s Revolver-era Beatles in terms of the sounds, the way the guitars and the drums sound. Also, interestingly enough, this will come up a little later, that song is the only song on the album co-written with Jack Antonoff, who will come up again when we talk about Taylor Swift. And lastly, there is a dub version of this record called Lucifer on the Moon, which is a completely dubbed, remixed, and in some cases, re-recorded version, chill version of the record by Adrian Sherwood. All right, back to the questions. Bill V says, do the billboard charts have the same cred in today's world of streaming? Which, no, they don't. And he follows up and says, is it better to have a streaming hit or a billboard hit? And the answer is streaming. Streaming's king. Streaming is what makes money, sells tickets, gets you record marketing, management deals, gets you a booking agent. Pretty much every relevant area of professional music, gatekeepers are looking at streaming numbers and social media engagement. And the Billboard chart hits are also artificially inflated by what's called streaming parties where dedicated fans around the world will stream songs on multiple devices at the same time of day. And I think after 30 seconds, you can restart the song and it'll count as a new stream. So fans are having these streaming parties, which could ostensibly like, it could put a Coldplay deep cut on the same Billboard chart as a legitimate hit song. A good example of this is in 2017, all 16 songs on Ed Sheeran's album Division were in the top 20 so streaming is is takes precedent for sure chelsea bowen says if you don't already own it what is your dream guitar and i do already own it it's my uh 1989 gibson j200 acoustic that my grandfather gave me when i was 17 and i think i've told this story before but i'll tell it again briefly i'd saved up money to buy a guitar my grandfather collected old gibsons and martins i grew up with those guitars just always around their house which is insane because they were like Ten cousins, you know, ten grandkids, always running around, and amazingly, none of them ever were destroyed. But they were always out on guitar stands, and the I suppose the real nice ones were in. He had this sort of mudroom off of uh, the back of their house that was just filled to when I was a kid. It may as well have been a thousand cases. I guess the nice ones were put in there, but there were pretty nice guitars, always on guitar stands in the living room, in the den, where he would lay on the couch and watch the grand old opry also like kind of in weird places in hallways and closets and all that stuff and so i always grew up seeing his guitars and around 12 13 i took an interest in it myself started playing guitars i was the only other member of the family that played music and when i was 17 i saved up i think i saved up 1500 bucks and i drove to montgomery and spent the afternoon with my grandfather and i told him i said hey i want to buy one of your guitars he had some money and I think some people in my family either subconsciously or consciously would take advantage of that meaning expect him to give them stuff or whatever but it was important to me to actually pay for it so I took 1500 bucks we had we had lunch I think Yeah, it was an early afternoon vibe I drove down to Montgomery from Birmingham and I said hey I really want to buy one of your guitars and he said well which one do you have in mind and I said, I want a Gibson J200. I want one of those big old Emmy Lou Harris guitars. And he said, well, go pick out one. And he, I think at the time he had about five. And one was like a Tobacco Sunburst. I, I can't really remember what they all looked like, but I remember he had several that I pulled out. And one was this beautiful 1989 blonde J200 that I have to this day. And so I picked that one out. I gave him 1500 bucks. You know, I told him I, it was important to me to pay for it. The guitar was worth more. This was in 2017, or not 2017. This is when I was 17. So this would have been 2001, maybe 2000. At the time, it was probably worth $3,000, maybe 3500 I can't remember. But I had 1500 bucks. I definitely wanted the family discount, but gave him the money. We finished hanging out. Of course, sat around playing the guitar for a while. And then it came time to leave, and... uh I got my car and he had a big long driveway on coliseum boulevard in montgomery alabama and i was backing out of the driveway slowly and i looked up and he was kind of waving at me running towards the car i stopped the car and he reached in and shook my hand and gave me my money back and so that's the story of that guitar and it's i've written most of my songs with it it's been all over the world on tour it's just a beautiful guitar thanks for the question all right This is a similar question by two people, so I'm going to read them both, uh, from The Outlaw Torn and Dennis Dalgard. Thoughts on Impera, which is Ghost's 2022 record. It's topping several metal lists for album of the year and well-deserved. What are your favorite songs on Ghost's Impera record? Or Impera, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. My favorite song on the album is Darkness at the Heart of My Love. The other standouts for me are Spillways and Call Me Little Sunshine. The album doesn't do much for me, but it's not because of ghost. I, th- I think it's because I've just personally moved on a bit from the whole ghost thing. It did not make my top 10 list. They still sound as good as they ever have. The riffs are great. The guitar sound great. The guitar solos are good. The hooks are very good. Um, I think for me, just the lyrical shtick of ghost has gotten old. And at this point, I'd really love to just hear a more personal album from Tobias. Really figure out what's going on with who he is. And, uh, see what's under the mask. yeah 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 spinning off the edge of the world from their album cool it down this is their fifth album their first album in nine years it was described as a cinematic fever dream and futuristic arena rock nominated for best alternative rock album grammy very cool everyone check out the yeah yeah yes moving on to the questions here cltz34 says if you had to drop guitar forever what would be your touring instrument of choice love you man well, thank you. Love you too. Um, If I couldn't play guitar, I would want to play keys, which I have done. I play keys on all of my demos, all the records I produce, and I have played keys live. I mean, I'm not Elton John up there, but I do know my way around it well enough to make sense on a, on a tour. And I just love keys. I love having all 10 fingers. I love the eight octaves of a piano, all spread out right there. And I love being able to use all 10 fingers to uh, make chords and make notes and... I actually learned how to play piano by just basically turning the fretboard of a guitar, you know, flat. And, you know, with making chords on guitar, you only have your, really, you only have four fingers. But you can hold more than one string with fingers. But your thumb is obviously bracing it to the back of the neck. And then the expression, you have six strings, the open notes. The expressions are only so much, it's limited. And you have about an octave and a half on a guitar piano spread out before you eight full octaves beautiful all 10 fingers um it's just a beautiful instrument it's my favorite instrument so that's what i would do i'm also quite capable as a bass player played bass live played bass on all my stuff so there's hope for me yet if uh if i find myself in a position where you know i'm in a band with mike campbell and uh there there doesn't need to be another guitar player paulina z says you mentioned two songs from tools last album Fear Inoculum, are now in your top 5 tool songs my wild guess is that you meant Invincible and the title track. Can you shed some light on the subject? What are your top five Tool songs? Any Tool talk, really? Well, thank you, Paulina. God knows I love to talk about Tool, one of my favorite bands. My top five are number five, Eulogy. Number four, Numa, which that's the second one from Fear Inoculum. Number three, Invincible, which is the first one. Number two, top five Tool songs is Lateralis. And number one, my number one favorite Tool song, and this has been the case since I was a kiddo, is the song Third Eye which is the ending track on 1996's Enema, probably Tool's masterpiece. Definitely their commercial breakout album. Um, Yeah, the, it's amazing that this far into the career, that two songs from the new album are now in my top five. The song Invincible particularly really struck me as it seems to be a song about the band itself, which the imagery of the lyric of the song is about kind of an, an aging warrior who is still trying to hang in there with relevance and still trying to be competitive, still trying to make the kill. I think it's a metaphor for the band. It's a metaphor for Maynard, you know, lurching into his 50s. As a 39 year old dad, I've, I feel like I'm seeing that everywhere around me. And of course, I'm just projecting that onto everything I'm reading and seeing. But, and then obviously just powerful, beautiful song too. Um, Tools, such a, um, they're just such a unique, singular type of band. And if you, it really is one of those things where if it found its way into your world, you really get it. And if it didn't, there's something about it that I think makes people scratch their heads. And there's plenty of bands that I do that with. I've got a friend who I love whose favorite band is Rush. And I just can't see it, I can't find my way into it in that way. And that's what music's like. But Pauline, I do appreciate the tool question. Love any chance I can to talk about Tool. Love in Church says, what's your favorite song that you've personally written? And would you give up touring to produce full time? Well, thank you for the question. I would give up touring in a heartbeat to produce full time. Producing is so much fun to be with an artist in a room and help them bring a record, something that they hear or see in their heads, into reality to you know, carve the proverbial goose from the ice. That is really fun. It's some of the most fun I've ever had making music. It's challenging and scary because sometimes you sit there and it hasn't taken shape yet. But being able to be home, not being on the road, not being away from the people that I love, being able to have a little more of a routine and having a puzzle to solve every day is just right up my alley. And I've been lucky. I mean, I've, I've traveled the world and seen a lot. I don't have a lot of like unexplored stuff. I think if I hadn't have done as much touring as I have done, I would still have that itch. But I've been lucky. I've been able to see a lot of the world many times. Um, tasted a lot of food. Had a lot of really formative, interesting conversations with people. Played a lot of bucket list venues. We're going to get to that later in another question. Um, but she asked my favorite song that I've ever written, uh, which is a great question. I'm really proud of all the songs that ended up on Vampire. I mean, the, 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 the kind of longer answer than I can get into is I don't know. I always think like whatever my last ten are are the best thing I've ever done, which isn't true, can't be true because I've thought that every ten songs for years and years. They're just the ones that obviously were closest to you know my heart and brain and my newest babies that were born, so I'm partial. but I do think that um uh, everything that ended up on vampire is really good. It was my first I've been writing songs for myself and for other people for so long, and so many of my friends who would hear my stuff, encouraged me to make an album. And I finally was able to, really only because the the Lunar Satan Kickstarter was so successful, it's like got double the funding that I needed to make the Lunar Satan record. And so I was able to pay to have Vampire made. You know, which can be just be very expensive if you want to do it right, to to get the right players, to get it mixed, to get it mastered, to get it put out. And so it was really important to me that when I curated that track list that I just felt like I picked my best stuff. The standouts to me on that album are Albatross, Japan, the title track. I love the title track, Vampire, but I've gotten the most response from Albatross, which is a song I wrote for two of my closest friends who went through really ugly divorces and I wanted to write a song for them that could give them some hope without hedging the truth of the ugliness of it. And uh, I, I really am proud of the second verse in the chorus. Says there's no shame in battles lost as long as both sides show up. And there's no way to measure out the cost of dying love. But you can't say I never warned you up front. I always told you who I was. So if you've gone and given up on us, don't lie and say it never was love. It was magic, and you know it was. We just used it up.
3: I know I fucked up before, Watch yourself, I can't slow down This is who I am, can't be anyone else So don't let me go Save yourself, just save yourself Just save yourself, I was born right yeah, I was born to take pills I was born to chase meals I was born to cave in I was born to fart hoes I was born to fight. God. I was born to What a shame
1: That was Post Malone with Reputation from his last album, 12 Carat Toothache, his fourth studio album, written with Just Posty and his longtime collaborator, Lewis Bell. It's a sadder album, more mature, but there's there's an ache in it that I haven't heard from him quite this way. And that's the first track on the album. If you like it, I highly encourage checking out Post Malone. Really beautiful stuff beneath the surface of the idea of him. I know a lot of you metalheads out there probably think it's lame, but I would encourage you to check it out. Moving on to more questions. Jonah Hearn says, come to Brazil. And all I have to say to that is if you book us, we will come, my friend. The next two questions are similar, so I combine them. Nicholas Garzolini says, what is your favorite venue to play and what is your least favorite to play? Do you like being the opener or headliner or direct support? And Derek Neneman says, hey, Clint, where is your favorite place to play live? What makes that place so awesome? Happy holidays. Well, happy holidays to you too, my friend. My favorite venues are generally the large 1,000-cap clubs. 930 Club in DC comes to mind, First Avenue in Minneapolis, the Metro in Chicago. There's a smaller club, I think it's about 500-cap, in San Francisco called The Independent that I love, The Showbox in Seattle, The Ogden Theater in Denver, Irving Plaza in New York City. These places obviously have the intimacy of a sweaty, passionate club show, but they're big. I mean, you know, when you're in those rooms, you're like, holy shit, we're selling tickets. This feels good, you're getting all of that energy. Uh, this last year, Doing a lot of support for bigger artists and arenas and stadiums. Super fun playing NBA basketball arenas. We played where the Bucks play, Pfizer Forum. We played where the New Orleans Pelicans play, OKC Thunder. We also got to play the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, the Seahawks Stadium, Ohio State Buckeye Stadium, uh, and Mile High Stadium in Denver. Just amazing, amazing venues and amazing places to be where these great sports franchises are. That was like a really big trip for me. Bucket list venues that I've played would be Hollywood Bowl and the Troubadour in L.A., the Ryman, of course, here in Nashville, Radio City Music Hall in New York City, the Gorge. Worst venues are really anywhere where there's a horrible load-in. Smith's Bar in Atlanta comes to mind. You have to take all of your amps and drums up this like shaky, horrible Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade like staircase. It's, you're just you know rolling the dice with death every time you play a gig there um and then of course the older you get the more grumpy you get about that kind of thing when you're a kid you're like where's the venue oh at the top of this insane mountain let's go but the more times you get on that ride the more you're like why have they not figured out a way like to get gear up to this fucking venue regarding the opening versus direct support versus headlining i mean all three slots on a tour have advantages first of three you get the least amount of time to set up sound check and play Most of the people aren't in their seats when you start to play, and the people who are there are most likely not there to see you. But it is fun to take the stage as the underdog, knowing that you have to kick the audience in the face as hard as you can, show them why you're on the tour, why you're worth paying attention to. Um, When you have the confidence in your show, just knowing that you're making new fans every time you play. That's a good feeling. That you're building something. Direct support, meaning you're the band that plays right before the headliner. It's more cush, you're given more time, a better slot, there's usually better money, uh, bigger guarantee, more stage time, generally treated with more respect, and I mean that generally. This year of touring, we were first of three, and we were in the Luke Combs camps and the Chris Apleton camps, and we were treated as good as any way I've ever been treated in my entire career. Those two operations are class acts from the top to the bottom. Really kind of can't say enough nice things about it. But direct support is better than first of three you're generally treated a little better. Headlining is obviously, to me, the best. It's your show. You sold the tickets. You get the most time for load-in, sound check, stage time. You have, of course, a responsibility to take care of the other acts on the bill. But ultimately, you call the shots. It's just the best. And we're starting our own headlining tour in February. It's going to be six weeks. It's already sold out. It's our first time doing it together. And I could not be more excited about it, especially after 2022, which was, other than Europe, was mostly support. Brad Blazik says, if Marty McFly ended up on your stage and said, this is a blues riff and B, watch me for the changes and try to keep up, could you actually keep up? And the answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. In 2011, I got a call from Bob Schneider, who I had met on the road the year before, asking me to come on tour with him. And it was a whole month tour. It was my first bus tour, actually. It was going to be for the entire month of May. He maybe called me in early April. No audition, no. He just said, said, hey, I'm touring with the band in May. A week and a half and then a little break and then another week and a half. Are you available? I'd love to have you come out. I said, yes. I was kind of familiar with his music, but not really. I asked him to send me a set list. He never did. So I was ambitious and I got on the internet and bought his records from iTunes. And I learned all of his songs. I learned all of the songs I think at that point his newest record was called A Perfect Day. So there's maybe seven or eight records of material. And I just learned all of them. Learned the solos, learned the signature hooks, and the moments in choruses where I thought I might be singing background vocals. I just went ahead and learned the, I just learned it. And all the while, still texting him, like you know, updating, like, hey, you know, I'd love to see an idea of a set list. I didn't know Bob at this time. I didn't know, which I will spoil now for you, that there are no set lists. He doesn't know the set. He never sent one because there isn't one. And he doesn't know what he's playing. So I fly into Austin to start the tour. The bus, Bob lives a little outside of town in a, uh, a city called Bee Cave. And the bus pulls up to his house, which I thought was pretty baller. And I'm sitting in his living room, like awkwardly, meeting the band for the first time. I really didn't know Bob. We all get on the bus. It's my first time ever on a tour bus. This is 2011. And we're all kind of getting to know each other and blah, blah, blah. And at one point I'd printed out a list of all of Bob's songs. And I was trying to find like a, you know, discreet moment. I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of his band. And I handed him the list and I said, Hey, when you get a minute, will you please mark off the songs on this list that we are definitely not going to play? Like I was trying to do a process of elimination here. Cause even though I don't all my homework, I was still planning on, you know, before sound check the next day, getting up early, taking my guitar somewhere and just making sure I knew it. And he looked at the list and just started laughing. And then he showed all the other band members on the bus. He's like, everybody, look at this. These are all the songs that Clint learned for the tour. And they were all laughing. I mean, I could tell they respected it. It wasn't a cruel... I mean, these these guys are all like really close friends of mine now. But it's funny thinking about it back then when I didn't know them. And Bob just looked at me laughing and he said, we're not going to play any of these songs. <laughs> Which wasn't totally true. I mean he's got some more or less hits. You know, he's got a song called 40 dogs, a song called honey pot, a song called let the light in a song called tarantula. There's a four or five that we did play every night, but we did not play many of those songs. What we did instead was we played whatever his new batch of songs were that he liked. And that meant me playing multiple songs a night on stage that I had never heard before, which I really, the first little bit of that was terrifying to me. And I kind of resented it. And I felt like, I wasn't being given the opportunity to be great. You know, I wasn't given the tools to succeed is how I felt. Because I really do my best when I'm rehearsed. But what it did is it grew that muscle in me that you have to listen, you have to pay attention. You have to be able to jump off, be willing to jump off the cliff and see what happens. And maybe you'll crash in burn, but and maybe, maybe something great will happen. You know, maybe you'll actually do something spontaneous and artful and creative, which is kind of Bob's whole thing. And it's something I really have grown to love and admire about him. And it's made me a better musician. I think it's made me a better creative person, a better artist. So if Marty McFly wants to throw Johnny B. Good at me in the Kia B, guess what, baby? We're going to blues town and I'm going to be just fine. Jay Middleton says, when you do a writing session that someone else initiates and brings the song idea that they feel passionate about, how do you break the ice on how to tell that person it's not good and convince them to make changes? What a great question. It's going to depend on how close you are to the person. All right. If it's if it's if you're meeting someone for the first time and you're in a room with an artist and they have an idea, you're not going to throw the hard sauce at them immediately. With that sucks. Let's beat that. Like I wrote for years with an artist named Elise Davis. We wrote all of her records together. We got very close. We were very creatively in tune. And we could we could just really get to the point very quickly. You know, I'm a writer producer, which means I like to have artists come in and already kind of know what they want to do. Even if they don't have a song, but they have an idea, they have a vibe. They know who they are. They know what they want to say or sound like. And then I'm off to the races. I'm ready to go because I I feel like I have enough vocabulary to tap into it, and I can start getting a track made. I, we can just start. We can just start getting it going. And so someone like Elise would come in, and if she had an idea that I didn't think was very good, I would say, Hey, that's not good. let what else you got? Let's beat that. But that's we'd establish a lot of trust, right? if it was someone i didn't know super well but they're also sort of one of the reasons they're in the room with me cuz they want to get something good you just find diplomatic ways to move past it or try to make that idea as good as it can be or you try to develop it enough to where maybe they can see that it's not great you know it's always good if they can come to that conclusion themselves instead of if they feel like they didn't have the say in it that they thought they deserved and the other the other side of that too is that you really want to do a song that the artist is excited about. So they might be excited about an idea that I don't really get, but if they're excited about it and they can really see the vision of it, and maybe I just can't, um, then it behooves me to try to develop it because if the artist is excited about a song that you're writing, it's going to have more chance of living outside of this room. I've had a lot of situations where I, the idea was not very good and I sort of helped shape it into something that I thought was good, but At some point in that process the artist fell out of love with it now maybe they were wrong maybe i was wrong whoever was right or wrong doesn't even matter but if the artist falls out of love with the song they're not going to want to put it on their record or play it live and on the flip side if an artist really loves it if you really help them develop something that they love even if it might not be something that i personally like it has more of a chance of being on their new record and a chance of them showing it to their band and playing it live And so that's kind of how i juggle those dynamics. And of course, I have ideas that aren't good too. I mean, the best, I always tell artists that I work with, especially when we first start writing together, I'm like, hey, I throw a lot of stuff against the wall. Please do not be afraid to tell me that it's not good because I just like to see what sticks. Like, what if we did, you know, I'm always asking what if, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we did this? I'm always turning it over. I'm always putting something else on it. One of my favorite things to do is to, Let's say we have like we're looping a verse. We have a vibe for a verse, so I've made like a the chords, a drum loop, and we're just looping it. We're writing to it. I love getting out a MIDI controller and putting a little melody down, and then getting like a random synthesizer and just hitting random patches and seeing what that melody can sound like. It might be some fucked up horn, or it might be a you know keys. It might be whatever. These I have the, all these great synthesizers programs, and just always trying to unlock the mystery of a song. I always look at songwriting like solving a puzzle. The song's already there. We just need to carve away from it and find it. And you really can't do that unless there's some sort of dialogue about this is good, this isn't as good. We can beat that. That's the language you usually use. I think we can beat that. Which is basically saying that's not as good. That's not good. (laughs) But if you are both there to solve the problem, to write something that's has a lot of personal integrity Or to tell a story that you think is good, that's going to resonate with people or help people or just be good to listen to, then there's not a lot that can stand in your way.
4: Everybody agrees
1: Taylor Swift, any Hero, from her new album Midnight's 10th studio album, released this October, co-written and produced with Jack Antonoff. Uh, the two amazing albums in 2020, Folklore and Evermore, just really blew my mind and got me on the Swift train. And then she spent 2021 re-recording her classic albums. She did Fearless and Red. And then she dropped Midnight's, which is a very minimal, kind of sleek, cool rumination on what she calls her Midnight songs songs of self-doubt, songs that you... In bed and worry about these, uh, these ideas. Of course, it's going to be Love Lauren stuff if it's Taylor Swift. I just love her stuff. I really do. I love listening to her music. I love that. that I could have picked several songs from this album, but I chose Anti Hero uh, for reasons that are obvious because it's badass and I love it. All right, moving on to the questions. Dan Whitney says, I recently discovered Rory Gallagher, and man, what a cool musician. It blows my mind hearing his early albums and realizing how ahead of time he was. Have you gotten into his stuff? You know, I know he was an influential Irish guitar player. I know that he influenced guitar players that I love, like The Edge and Slash and Brian May. But I actually don't know much of his music. Um, I've always been drawn to guitar players who fit inside of a band system. Uh, There's, of course, exceptions to that. I I like to listen to Steve Vai and Yngwie Malmsteen and Big Hendrix guy and all that. But I mostly love the guys that were in bands. So I'm interested to, to do a dive into Rory Gallagher. Um, he's definitely one of those names that's been hovering in my life as I've been playing guitars since I was 12, reading guitar magazines when I was a kid. He's definitely always been up there. He's a legend. And I should really check it out. I'm going I'm to make a resolution to do that this year. Thank you for uh, the inspiration, Dan. Craig Elba says, please share your story of becoming slash deciding to be an atheist after many years of Christianity that included Bible schooling. I've talked about this a little bit before, but let me break some of that down for anyone curious. I do occasionally mention that I'm an atheist only because I think that it's underrepresented in the world. I think it's important for people out there to know that someone that they might respect or listen to or think is interesting to know that there are atheists out here, right? There's a lot of confusion about what it means and about how it you know, comes to be. Some people Think that means I'm a heathen or a hedonist or that I have no morals, no basis for morality, or that I'm mad at God or mad at church, or that of course gets compounded when they find out that I have a kind of a you know unique history of being a devout religious person. So let me kind of tell you a little bit of my story and uh hopefully we can just contextualize all this. I was raised nominally religious in the Deep South Bible Belt. We went to church a couple of times a year, usually on Easter and Christmas. And then a few random weeks here and there, when my mom felt guilty enough to pronounce that we were going to start going to church regularly, which would of course only last a few weeks or maybe a month at the most before we settled back into our ordinarily busy lives. Another the, the occasional bedtime admonishment to say a prayer or children's Bible story before bed, which I distinctly remember the story in Exodus of the, the plague of frogs as a kid used to scare the hell out of me. Um, we lived more or less as non-religious people, but we always believed in Jesus. Of course, he was the son of God. He forgave us our sins. You needed to be good in general because God watched everything you did. But in the end, Jesus was going to make sure that you were squared away with the big guy upstairs. It was typical, and other than having to get up early, wear uncomfortable, overly starched shirts, and make new friends every time we changed churches because my mom was too embarrassed to go back to whichever one we'd quit going to previously, it was pretty harmless. I was a fairly normal teenager, of course loved music and playing guitar. Uh, playing baseball, going on dates with my girlfriend, staying up late with friends, eating pizza, watching movies our parents wouldn't approve of into the early morning. Seems like every weekend we had somehow gotten a hold of a VHS copy of one of the Faces of Death films, Harmony Korine's Kids, sleazy 80s horror films that were basically poor excuses for softcore porn, the Japanese body horror mindfuck Tetsuo, Caligula, Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Occasionally we smoked weed or took nips from someone's dad's whiskey bottles, but honestly not very often. And most of my free time was spent in garages and finished suburban basements learning Metallica and Pearl Jam songs, practicing at what would ultimately become my vocation, being a professional musician. But I was also aimless. I had a single mom who was overworked and getting divorced. We were living with my grandmother. There was no father figure. I was going through all the normal turmoil that seems like the end of the world to a teenager in a broken home. At 17, I began dating a Christian girl. She was what we called at the time, on fire for the Lord which basically meant she took it seriously. She read her Bible. She prayed every day. She actually went to church regularly, was involved in a youth group, and uh, she took me to a revival in Pleasant Grove, Alabama. Filled with cool kids my age, an impressive rock band, a likable and charming preacher who didn't seem to be selling me anything like the evil fucks on TV always were. There was a strong sense of community, belonging, a collective feeling that we were serving a higher purpose. It was irresistible. And at the end, as the band played an emotionally stirring rendition of Open the Eyes of My Heart, which keep in mind, this was 2001, I got saved, meaning in Christian language that I, quote unquote, accepted the fact that Jesus was my Lord and Savior and committed my life to following him and his teachings. That's how it started. And when I get into something, I go hard. You guys know that. I found a hip local Baptist church with a thriving youth program. I got involved. Soon I was leading discipleship retreats, mission trips, playing in the youth group band, even playing during the Sunday services with the big boys. I was a poster child for a devoted Christian kid, voraciously read the Bible. I got heavily interested in theology and the history of the church. After high school, I was doing regional touring, playing in a couple of churches, eventually enrolled in Southeastern Bible College, where I was studying pastoral counseling with aspirations to go to a reformed seminary in California. I really can't state how seriously I took the entire enterprise of Christianity. I often attended theological debates, even had several of my own at my churches and youth groups. If a Mormon came knocking on your door, I was the guy everyone would call to go talk to the Mormons. Eventually, I changed paths on the Bible college and seminary thing. I started going to a community college in Birmingham while I was touring, playing in local clubs, and working at guitar shops around town. I met my first wife and many of the people who would go on to become some of my best friends at a place called Red Mountain Church in Birmingham, which was an inner city Presbyterian church that I started attending in 2003. The place was very theologically oriented, heavy on liturgical rituals, very low-key. It was less emotional, more intellectual, which I really liked at that time. We took communion every week. We sang reimagined hymns from ancient Christian poetry instead of contemporary praise songs. I would actually go on to become obsessed with old hymnals particularly a collection of hymns from the 1800s compiled by William Gatsby called Gatsby's Hymns, a selection of hymns for public worship. I wrote over a hundred songs from these poetry books, many of which are still sung in churches today, as wild as that sounds. Uh, As I got older, I began touring more. I got married. I saw dynamics change in all of my relationships. I met more and more beautiful, intelligent friends who weren't religious, and it became increasingly difficult for me to believe that they were going to burn in hell forever, which was a fairly non-negotiable tenet of my particular theological beliefs at the time. The truth is is that not much of any of my dearly held spiritual beliefs were corresponding with my observable reality, my experience. It became harder and harder to square those circles. The Bible itself is a very confusing contradictory collection of documents and there was a a guy named Bart Ehrman who was a Bible scholar and he wrote a lot of textual criticism of the Bible that was really informative for me at the time, like really understanding what the new testament was how it came to be the overlap the politics involved the margin for human error in memory and in translation i've always had a bit of a layman's interest in popular science and around 2007 2008 i was reading stephen hawking's a brief history of time i was reading black holes and baby universes stuff was challenging my belief systems i was reading darwin's On Natural selection i was reading carl sagan's secular humanistic essays the demon-haunted world was huge for me The Dragons of Eden, a book called Billions and Billions. I had honest conversations with my friends and mentors and pastors about all of it. Some of my questions they were able to answer. Some of them were very unsatisfying. Ultimately, I trusted God, um, and I didn't know it then, but looking back, I was definitely in the slow process of shedding my religious beliefs and becoming an atheist. The moment when I was finally able to admit this to myself was when I read Carl Sagan's The Variety of Scientific Experience and Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Those two were very, very powerful books. Uh, it wasn't just the books, of, though, of course. It was the last door to walk through of like a large castle I'd been descending the stairs of for the last year. And it really cost me a lot. Uh, it took a fatal toll on my relationship with Red Mountain Church, many of the relationships I had cultivated there, and even to a degree my first marriage, although my then wife would also become an atheist shortly after. So similar to when I became a Christian, I sort of poured myself into the literature <laughs> the literature of the damned, the literature of the heathens. I read all the Dawkins stuff, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett, the so-called four horsemen of atheism. I read the old school stuff, the Bertrand Russell, On Ran. I read Nietzsche. I read Freud, Kierkegaard, Sartre. I really dove hard into a lot of humanistic enlightenment era writings. I became fascinated with evolution, devouring Charles Darwin. I got into Franz de Waal, who's the world's leading primatologist. He wrote a lot of books about uh, primates, I got into Michael Shermer's books about why people believe in weird things, the science of morality, Lawrence Krauss's physics books explaining a universe from nothing, so on and so forth. And so now 12 years into atheism, I'm as skeptical as I've ever been about the existence of the Christian God, really any God I've heard of. But I stay open to the possibility. I look for magic in my everyday life. I'm not quick to judge my religious friends, although I do think sometimes their beliefs get in their own way. Uh, I'm not really all that interested in theological debates anymore, life's hard, people have all sorts of different ways to cope with what I believe are the three most important questions, which are number one, where do we come from? Number two, where do we go when we die? And number three, does our suffering have meaning? And let's face it, if Dylan or Prince couldn't answer those three questions for us, we're all totally fucked. Ryan Adams with Eyes on the Door from the album he dropped out of nowhere called Devolver. Uh, He put out four albums last year. Two of them were double albums. Romeo and Juliet, Chris, the sort of 80s rocker, FM, and then Devolver, my favorite, which is basically just 10 rollicking rock songs. That's my favorite song on the album. Uh, I think at this point you can stream it, but He dropped it at like midnight on his website. You just had to actually download it, you know, like our ancestors used to do. So I do recommend that album. It's only 30 minutes long, and it'll scratch that rock itch if you got it, baby. All right, questions. Chris Matthew Vedder says, as a fellow horror movie fan, what have been some of your favorite horror movies to come out this year? Well, lots of good stuff this year. The German horror film Dawn Breaks Behind the Eyes, Mimi Caves Fresh, which I believe has the best soundtrack of the year, Jordan Peele's epic Alien feature Nope, the surprisingly good Predator prequel, Prey. One of my favorites was Alex Garland's Men, which has probably the best acting in a horror movie by Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Also a killer body horror transformation towards the end of that movie. Really worth seeing. Um, a possible Cronenberg masterpiece, Crimes of the Future, starring Vigo Mortensen, Elias Sadeau, and Kristen Stewart. A dystopian body horror tale in which humans have adapted to a synthetic environment. And a performance artist makes a gallery showing out of the new strange organs growing in his body. And as the tagline of the film states, surgery is the new sex. My favorite of the year was Zack Greger's Barbarian, which you should know, uh, you should go into knowing as little bit about it as possible before you watch it. I was really blown away by the, seri- the miniseries Dahmer on Netflix. It was one of the best horror things I watched all year. Absolutely amazing performance by Evan Peters. Um, I still need to see a handful. The ones on my list that I still haven't seen, Hatching, Pearl, Something in the Dirt, and The Menu, horror films that I saw that were either okay or plain terrible. Again, these are movies I do not recommend. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, X, You Won't Be Alone, The Gateway, Halloween Ends, The Black Phone, and The Invitation. Zach Burkhart says, what are some of your favorite films you saw this year? Well, the NBA and sort of a reinvigorated reading agenda have definitely encroached into my film watching time. But Thank you to Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, which I highly recommend, by the way. I finally did get to see some great movies that I've either overlooked or never heard of. The super fun Jim Brown 70s black exploitation film Black Gun, Steve McQueen's The Great Escape and Bullet, Don Siegel's Escape from Alcatraz, and Dirty Harry, Taxi Driver, the lost-of-time John Avildsen political thriller Joe, in which a yuppie upper-class liberal forms an unlikely partnership with blue-collar conservative Joe and ends up executing hippies in an upstate commune in the late 60s. How does that sound, everybody? Um, Surprisingly enjoyed the movie Spiderhead, which is the film adaptation of one of my favorite George Saunders short stories, Escape from Spiderhead, from his 2013 collection, 10th of December. I loved Robert Eggers' The Northman, which my friend Tom Kui, hello, hi, thinks is like the best movie ever made somehow. But it really is good. We're seeing Top Gun Maverick had me crying in a theater on tour alone. Tar, I enjoyed the wonderfully torturous Marilyn Monroe biopic Blonde. The last two Paul Schrader films first performed, which has an amazing performance by Ethan Hawke as a troubled priest who may or may not be going insane. The Card Counter, the horror series in disguise White Lotus season two. I also rewatched the entire Batman, Predator, RoboCop, and Jim Varney's Ernest franchises. And I also revisited my top 10 Woody Allen films, which for anyone interested are Manhattan, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Love and Death, A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, Stardust Memories, Hannah and Her Sisters, Husbands and Wives, Sleeper, Shadows and Fog, and lastly, Broadway, Danny Rose. flaty. says, Jason Brantley missed my Patreon shout-out back in September, but you boys were touring flat-out. I forgive y'all. On a serious note, thanks for the laugh-out-loud moments while I'm listening through headphones and people stare at me like I'm a fool just starting out on your IOK podcast with Bob Schneider and having a blast. Come to Australia. Love you guys. Well, flaty. I apologize if you missed your Patreon shout-out. Um, allow me to say thank you. Uh, cordially to you now. The support means a lot to us. And I'm glad you're checking out the Bob Schneider podcast. It's uh, for any of those who may not know, I do a podcast with Bob Schneider called I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. Episodes every Monday, wherever you get lovely podcasts. They're all 30 minute episodes. We keep it tight and right over there. 30 minute sort of potpourri episodes where it's just slice of life culture vulture stuff and occasionally very funny. Writer Phil K says, will you be including Lux Eterna in your favorite songs? Uh, well, no. I mean, Lux was easily one of the most exciting songs to come out this year. It's short, it's sweet, packs a lot of punch, has a killer soaring chorus, deep, meaningful uh, lyrics. The song has been a lighthouse for Metallica fans out at sea wondering, perhaps fearfully, about the future of our favorite metal band. Thankfully, things are looking really good for the new record for the new tour. I didn't include the song because most of the people who listen to this episode are already Metallica fans. And I did want to use this opportunity to shed a light on something a little or maybe even a lot different for you guys. You know, shake up your algorithms. And speaking of the almighty algorithm.
5: Welcome to the internet. Have a look
1: around. Anything that
5: brain of yours can think of can be found. We've got mountains of content, some better, some worse. If none of it's of interest to you, you'd be the first. Welcome to the internet Come and take a seat Would you like to see the news Or any famous women's feet There's no need to panic This isn't a test (laughs) Just nod or shake your head And we'll do the rest Welcome to the internet What would you prefer? Would you like to fight for civil rights Or tweet a racial slur? Be happy, be horny Be bursting with rage We got a million different ways to engage stage Welcome to the internet, put your cares aside Here's a tip for straining pasta, here's a nine-year-old who died We got movies, and doctors, and fantasy sports And a bunch of colored pencil drawings of all the different characters in Harry Potter fucking each other Welcome to the internet, hold on to your socks Cause a random guy just kindly sent you photos of his cock They are grainy and off-putting, he just sent you more Don't act surprised, you know you like it, you whore See a man-beheaded, get offended, see a shrink Show us pictures of your children, tell us every thought you think Start a rumor, by a broomer, send a death threat to a boomer Or DM a girl and groomer, do a zoomer, find a tumor in your Here's a healthy breakfast option, you should kill your mom Here's why women never fuck you, here's how you can build a bomb Which Power Ranger are you? Take this quirky quiz Obama sent the immigrants to vaccinate your kids could I interest you in everything all of the time, a little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime, anything and everything all of the time. Good, I interest you in everything all of the time, a little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime, anything and everything all of the time. You know, it wasn't always like this. Not very long ago, just before your time, right before the towers fell, circa 99, this was catalogs, travel blogs, a chat room or two. We set our sights and spent our nights waiting for you, you, insatiable you, mommy let you use her iPad. look at you 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 unstoppable watchable your time is now your insides out honey how you grew and if we stick together who knows what we'll do it was always Put the world in your hand (laughs) Could I interest you in everything All of the time A bit of everything All of the time Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime. Anything and everything, all of the time. Could I interest you in everything all of the time? A little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime. Anything and everything and anything and everything and anything and everything and all of the time.
1: That was Bo Burnham with Welcome to the Internet from his what I'm considering a masterpiece comedy special that came out during the pandemic called inside it's a top tier recommendation for all of you out there it's going to i believe be studied in the future and it is one of the most brilliant interpretations of that insane time in human history that i've ever seen a lot of commentary a lot of pandemic records a lot of pandemic movies being made and that is the best i've ever seen in terms of combining like really great um human commentary with comedy it's fucking hilarious great music great songs it's really well shot he edited the whole thing he filmed it all it's very very interesting and the soundtrack even without all of those elements the songs just really hold up that song reminds me of the oogie boogie man from uh, a <laughs> nightmare before christmas it's he's got a great haunting but i don't know if you could tell but the song like accelerates as it goes and uh, the maniacal laughter at the end and he says you know it was always our plan to put the world in your hands, and then he's laughing like the oogie boogie man. It's just cinematic and creepy and awesome. And that's why it made the old list. All right, we're burning through the questions here. Zach Lipkin Moore says, Do you prefer the electric version of the acoustic version of the electric version of the acoustic version of the album version of the We End Our Lives as Mole's version of All Within My Hands? Um, it's tough, you know. The SNM two version of the acoustic reimagining of All Within My Hands. Really is chef's kiss. I mean, it's really a magical performance. But the latest electrified version kind of sounds like Lode Era Metallica. And for that reason, I do give the newest electric version of the acoustic version of the album version the slight edge. Cthulhu45 says, what is your favorite Willbury song? Traveling Wilberries, the great, probably the last, the greatest and the last supergroup ever. The Traveling Wilberries, which consisted of Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, and who am I leaving out? George Harrison the quiet beetle, the beetle who faced the East. Um, my favorite song is going to be the end of the line and everyone needs to go check out that record. Joey Ursic says, what's your favorite song in the Morgan Wade set list? Uh, my favorite songs are Northern air. We do a really killer Miley Cyrus cover called bad karma. And then I like playing our hit song water days. I think it's one of her best songs. I love seeing the crowd react to it. I think it got to number 27 on the old chart. So it's the one that people know. I say that specifically when we were playing like support shows, like when we play over Luke Combs or Stapleton or Ryan Hurd or whomever, that's the one that everyone would know. When we play any song that are her shows, um, people go insane about the deepest of cuts. Chris Yerder says, where do you place Elvis in music royalty? I really don't know much about Elvis. I've never been honestly drawn to his music, but he's obviously a fascinating and undeniable American icon who really meant a lot to musicians that I admire, most notably the Beatles and specifically John Lennon, who, sharing the title of greatest songwriter of all time, in my opinion, with Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney, is quoted as saying this about Elvis, that before there was Elvis, there was nothing.
6: So don't you know? Now put your faith up in the sky. so don't you know now put your faith up and- So
1: that was johnny marr with spirit power and soul johnny marr of course a guitar player of the wonderful band the smiths this is his fourth solo studio album released on february 26 it's a double album of 15 songs preceded by two eps in 2021 he's got this great new wave darkness he co-wrote it with james doviak who's his longtime guitarist and co-producer and i can't get enough of it i love hearing him sing you can go find videos too of him singing like great smith songs also and it's you know, Morrissey is kind of un, untouchable, unparalleled, but it's cool seeing him do it. He's got a new vibe, a different vibe to his vocals, seeing him sing like How Soon Is Now, for example. But I definitely obviously recommend Johnny Marr's solo album called Fever Dreams. Spirit, Power, and Soul was the song. All right, moving on here with the questions. Mike Bowling says, I'm of the opinion that Dave Matthews' band truly needs a fiddle player and would love to see a female fiddle to round out what makes DMB shine. I don't want Boyd back Just the sound and energy that he brought in those late 90s and early 2000s. What say you? Well, for those of you who don't know, Boyd Tinsley, the longtime violinist for the Dave Matthews Band, was fired in May of 2018 due to a lawsuit against Boyd alleging sexual misconduct. There were a lot of other things leading up to his exit from the band, including erratic behavior, very noticeable decline in playing the last 10 years or so that he was in the band, rumored to be the result of personal problems and drug abuse. The lawsuit seemed to be the final nail in the coffin, maybe even an unfortunately convenient excuse to pull the plug. Since he split, the band has hired keyboardist Buddy Strong, who fills out the live band. They've been touring without the violin, which, you know, the violin is a formative and signature sound, especially of the band's first three and most beloved studio albums. But they've been touring with Buddy to mostly positive reviews, some mixed reviews, though, from longtime fans. Like most DMB nerds, I've missed the texture of the fiddle, especially on songs like Dancing Nancy's, Warehouse, Ant's Marching, Pig. Those songs just aren't the same. They're not the same without him. But I probably don't miss it as much as some other people do. These days, I'm more drawn to the studio recordings. So the issues with live performances really aren't that important to me. The band seems to be happier without them. Uh, they seem to be having fun on the road. I've definitely been in bands with other members who were kind of weighing the whole camp down. And I know how relieving it can feel to be free of a burden like that. In terms of a violin replacement, I don't really care if it's a male or female musician, uh, as long as they're good. It'd be nice to hear violin again, particularly in the aforementioned songs. But ultimately, I support whatever Dave and the band want to do. And really, I'm just glad they're still out there taking that beautiful music to the world, baby. Michael Fell says, did you write a Christmas song for Nova and are you willing to share it? Wow thank you for asking yes for those of you who don't know i write a christmas song for my daughter every year and uh so that way when she's you know 20 years old i'll be able to hand her a double album and say hey your dad did something for you and uh, i will share one right now this one's called wake up it's christmas
7: tears—at least for the day—of monsters are real.
1: Dick Swagger says, firstly, thanks for creating such an awesome podcast. It's great to finally be on the Patreon train. What's your favorite debut album pick out of Guns N' Roses, Stone Temple Pilots or Velvet Revolver? Well, the correct answer is of course Appetite for Destruction. I think ultimately Appetite and Ben Halen 1 share the number one spot for greatest debut rock albums of all time. But being both a Use Your Illusion kid and a diehard STP fan, I would in general, at least right now, rather listen to Core than the kind of sleazy dangerous and mildly scary appetite for destruction mick also says as a multi-instrumentalist i love to write songs i have at least an album's worth of material that's pretty much done but can't for the life of me write lyrics or melody i've been trying for the last couple of years and end up working up more music for songs but just can't get any lyrics out as someone who writes great lyrics frequently do you have any advice well i appreciate you saying that uh mick and yes i mean the number one advice I have for people who are creatively sort of stuck is get out of your own way. Start writing stuff down, even if you think it's dumb, even if you think it's garbage and you can set small goals for yourself that are achievable, like write a paragraph about your kneecap or describe the sounds you hear outside your window. Do this every morning for something like three days or five days. See what happens or just two days. Just try to do something two days in a row. Writing is a muscle, just like anything else. It has to be developed and cultivated and paid attention to and worked out. Uh, I strongly believe in the power of hunkering down and, and just putting something on the page. Do the work. I emphatically do not believe in writer's block. And now, you may not get something down that you love or even come close to capturing whatever it is you might see or hear inside your head, but you will never get to that place if you don't sit down first and put the proverbial pen to the paper. So my advice is to get out of your own way, Embrace the process, have fun, and good luck. That is The Smile. The song is called Free in the Knowledge from their album, A Light for Attracting Attention. The Smile is a side project of Radiohead with uh, frontman Tom York and guitar player Johnny Greenwood. And there's a drummer named Tom Skinner who I was unfamiliar with. But if you like Radiohead, you're going to like The Smile. It all kind of sounds like that dreamy, beautiful, otherworldly, from another planet stuff. All right, this is the last little block of questions. And then I'm going to leave you with probably my favorite new song of the year by Ethel Kane, called American Teenager. And uh, actually, this first question kind of gets into it. Julius Creve says, what's your favorite new band discovery this year? Which is a great question. It's Ethel Kane. Uh, We're going to hear from her in just a few minutes. She, I believe she's living in Alabama right now, Uh, but from Florida, Florida Florida-born singer-songwriter. She makes ambient alternative dream pop with Southern Gothic themes. There's poverty, lost love, transgenerational trauma, religious indoctrination, real feel-good hit of the summer shit, really. Uh, but it's absolutely blown me away. It's mesmerized me. You'll find out why when you hear the last song. And you'll hopefully check out her debut full link, which is called Preacher's Daughter. Kevin Van Dam, good friend of the show, says, What are you most thankful for in 2022? I'm thankful for my health, the health of my wife and my daughter. Thankful I got to tour the world with people I love, making music I love and am challenged by. To have been given the opportunity to be Morgan's band leader, produce a few EPs for her. I'm thankful for the songs I've been able to write both for myself and for others that are finding life outside of my small studio in Nashville. I wrote the song called uh, Hush Money with a Canadian trio of country girls called The Heels, that's apparently like blown up on TikTok, has like 2 million views on TikTok. And now all these um, DJs around the world are remixing it, which has been to think of that song, how it started here in my studio, to how it's reaching people in the world. I'm just so grateful. And surprised about that one specifically. Um, I'm thankful for everyone who supported my Kickstarter campaign for Going Supernova. Thankful for my podcast, the community of people who make all of that work worth doing. I'm thankful to have discovered the band Low. I mean, if if bands could be your soulmate, they would be mine. Thankful for all the music and films and books that continue to inspire me, open doors to better worlds, that teach me empathy, the power of story, Uh, things like that. Thank you for the question, Kevin. Thankful for you. Thankful to have you as my friend. Josh Mellinger says, Hey Clint, thanks for all the amazing content this year. What are some of your goals for 2023? Very fitting question to wrap this up. Well, first of all, hey Josh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate you, dude. I think I want uh, what most people want. I want to move forward with success, professional and emotional. I want to make healthier choices physically and mentally. Uh, It's going to be another busy year of touring the world with Morgan starting with our first six-week headlining tour that's already sold out. I'd like to continue writing songs that are honest and good, that resonate with people. Um, Hopefully putting out my poetry book, which is called Disappear Mid, by the way. Songs for the Haunted and Haunting. Another collection of piano and acoustic-driven sad songs, kind of like Elliot Smith, like my EP, Great White Light. And for sure, wanting to finish Lunar Satan, Volume 2. Whatever happens, I hope to be surrounded by the people that I love and who love me. And if Joe Fox comes into my life and destroys my professional dreams, maybe I can at least fall in love with him on the internet and he can fund my vinyl collection.
8: cheer